Father, thank you for this morning uh, that we can worship together, that we can worship what you did on the cross and then what happened three days later uh, when you rose again uh, from the grave. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give this time to you, and we thank you for being the Savior and Lord that, we are, that you are. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. I kind of I mistimed the end of that song, didn't I? I just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Uh, this morning is not a normal Sunday morning. This morning uh, is a, a, a Sunday morning that is different, actually, than every... Well, it's a Sunday morning set apart to remember something special. It's a Sunday morning set apart to remember something that we actually remember and celebrate every Sunday, uh, but to give a special time to remember the fact that Christ... When he died, did not stay dead, but he rose again. He is risen. Be free. And we're here today to celebrate that. We're celebrating this actually together with believers all across the globe, every tradition, every country, all around the world. Believers this morning are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just around the globe, but throughout time, every Christian has celebrated the fact that Jesus Christ, when he died, did not stay dead arose again. Now this morning, uh, we're coming to the end of a very short walk through the book of Mark. Um, if you have been with us from the beginning here, um, let me bring you up to speed on what we've seen in the book of Mark so far. Because at the beginning of the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he's doing these miracles, showing the nature of the kingdom, putting the display of the king, uh, the, the power of the kingdom on display for the world to see proving his message. He begins teaching in parables, telling about the nature of the kingdom. Uh, and with all of this, there's this growing anticipation and growing expectation that maybe this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the king that we've been waiting for who would come to usher in that kingdom. Now, in the mind of the Jewish people, the Messiah coming meant that a military leader was coming. Somebody who would come, who would overthrow the Romans, set the Jews free from their oppression, and usher in an earthly kingdom. That's what they expected on Sunday. But by Friday, Jesus had not set up a throne. He was dead. We remember that on Good Friday. I, I hope you were able to join us on the, on the live stream from Barrington. Jesus died on Friday. And for those who had hoped in him that he was the Messiah, the death of Jesus was the death of their hope. Jesus must not have been the Messiah that the Old Testament spoke about. He must not be the one who's coming to set up this kingdom, to set the Jews free from oppression, because dead men don't lead revolutions. Dead men don't overthrow regimes. And Jesus was dead. But today we celebrate because this man's life didn't end in death. Think about those words. This man's life didn't end in death. Those words had never really been able to be said before. We can think about a few miracles where people came back to, the li to life again in the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry, but all those people died. Again. But not Jesus. Jesus' life did not end in death. But the thing that we're celebrating on Easter is not only that Jesus' life didn't end in death, but that by faith our life doesn't end in death either. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, we're going to read what happened and celebrate what happened 
on the first Easter morning. So let me read this passage for us. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. Then we will pause, pray, and unpack it. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, understandably. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Let's pause and pray one more time before we unpack this passage. Heavenly Father, the message of this passage in in some ways, in some ways it just feels like the aftermath of the most incredible part of your story. Isn't the cross where you won your victory, Lord? Isn't the cross where you crushed the head of Satan? Well, Father, we remember the fact that if the cross was all that happened, we wouldn't be worshiping you this morning. If the cross was all that happened, Jesus wouldn't be worthy of our praise. But the fact is, cross wasn't the end of the story. Jesus' death wasn't the end of his life. You rose again. Jesus, you rose again to new life, and because of that, that changes everything. We celebrate that this morning. And we pray, Father, that this morning we would be led to worship. We're not going to get cute with this passage. We're not going to try to find new ways to make this amazing. This passage is amazing in itself. The life you offer us by your resurrection is amazing in itself. So I just pray, Lord, that as we come to this passage, you would give us fresh eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Fresh eyes to comprehend how amazing your work is, Lord. Re-enchant us, we pray to the beauty of what you did when you died on the cross for sins and rose again to new life, victorious over the powers of death. We pray that you do that in all of us, Lord, and that it would move us just a little step closer to understanding just how marvelous your love is for us beyond comprehension. We pray that you do that this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, we celebrated what happened last Sunday in, in Jesus's story. Uh, what happened the last week was that Jesus came riding a donkey into Jerusalem and everybody rolled out the red carpet for him. They put blankets on the, on the, on the road before, them, before him, palm branches. They were shouting sings of, songs of praise. They were declaring who he is. This royal procession and many cheered, hoping that he was going to be the Christ who would set them free. But apparently he wasn't. Because on Friday, this man who they hoped would be the great liberator seemed to have lost. He didn't come to raise a kingdom, it seems, because he came and he was killed on a cross. He didn't receive praise, he received ridicule. He, didn't, he wasn't given a crown of gold, he was given a, a crown of thorns. He wasn't given a scepter to hold in his hand, he was given a spear to stick in his side. He didn't have anointing oil run down his head, but his own blood came running down his head. He wasn't sat upon a throne. He was laid into a tomb. If you had had your hope in Jesus Christ, 
your hope had died with Jesus. Though they thought he was the Messiah, apparently he wasn't. Now, Jesus' death, it, it was a failure, right? But it was more than a failure. Because Jesus' death, I mean, he claimed to be somebody. He claimed to be a king. And his death wasn't, therefore, just a failure. It was actually an indication that he was a fraud. That everything that he said had been a lie. I know C.S. Lewis is very popular and and, uh, well-known for saying that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Either he was a bad person, a mad person, or God. But with a dead Christ, it seemed like one of the first two were the only options. Either he was a liar, he willingly misled the Jewish people, or he was a lunatic, he was mad. He thought he was God, but was wrong. That's what it seems like was happening when on Sunday morning these three women made their way to the tomb. And so these three women coming to the tomb, they went to honor him one final time, one final act of love, uh, anointing his body for burial. And this is actually the soonest they could have done it. After all, he died on Friday. The Sabbath started that evening at sundown. It went all the way through Saturday at sundown. Then it was too dark until the sun rose on on Sunday morning. And so as soon as they were able to go, these three women went to the tomb to do one uh, one final way that they could bless Jesus and honor his body. And as they went and as they walked, uh, they worried. They said to each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, it makes sense, right? Because tombs are one-way Tombs have one-way doors. Uh, There's no reason to make the tomb easy to access. And so they rolled a massive stone into place, too big for the three of them to manage together, so that nobody could get in or out. But when they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled back. What do you think was going through their minds? Olivia and I, we, we go on walks in town quite a bit, and uh, sometimes we'll, we'll find ourselves at the, at the graveyard across the street from the Dunkin' Donuts, and we'll be walking uh, up and down the aisles there. But as we're walking, what do you think would go through our minds if we saw a big hole in the ground? We went over to that hole, and we found an empty coffin at the bottom, a coffin with the lid unceremoniously torn off. He is risen! That wouldn't be the first thing going through our minds. I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't the first thing going through these, these women's minds. I mean, yes, Jesus had said a couple times in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that he was going to rise again. That didn't seem to click with people. We see that throughout the Gospels. Nowhere do we have any indication that any of the disciples were thinking, oh, okay, yeah, he said something about this. Maybe they were thinking, oh, man, we were worried about how we are going to move the stone, but hey, problem solved. <laughs> I don't think that was going through their mind either. I think the, the question in their mind, how will we honor this body, got changed a little bit. No longer were they worried about how will we honor this body. Their question was now, who dishonored this body? Who moved this, the body of Jesus? Who would do such a thing to go in to defile the tomb of the man that we called Lord? Well, they go and they enter into the tomb. And this is what we read in verses 5 through 7. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting On the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, understandably. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, you you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they enter into this tomb, a small rock cave, and they look around and they see a man sitting there. It's probably alarming enough in itself. And this, this man we actually know was an angel. Um, we know that from Matthew chapter 28. We don't have to guess. This is an angel. And as, as is so often the case when we see angels uh, in the Gospels specifically, uh, they do a number of different things, but the main thing that they tend to do is bring messages from God. And that's what's happening here. God sent this angel in his mercy to explain to the people, to these three women, and now to us, what actually happened that morning. Let's, let's look at what he says, starting again in, in, in the middle of verse 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. So the first thing he does is calm them down, right? They're alarmed at what's happening. They're alarmed at the fact that this tomb is open, not what they were expecting. And then they go in and there's a guy in there. Just, just calm down. He is risen. He is not here. You see, see the place where they laid him. He explains what happened to them. We'll come back to that. Finally, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. He calms them down. He tells them what happens. He sends them to tell the disciples. Now, you might know that the original, originally the, the Greek, Greek was the language of the New Testament. This book was written in Greek. And what's amazing about this passage, the explanation, is really the whole thing can be boiled down to just one word in the Greek language. Just one word that describes the key, most important part of this passage. And it's the Greek word, egerthe. Egerthe, which literally just translated means, he has risen. Just think about this. The entire story of Jesus Christ hangs on what happened. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ comes down to whether or not he truly rose from the dead. But he says in just one word, explaining to them what happens. It almost feels offhanded, doesn't it? Egerthe. <laughs> he is risen. Something so important boiled down to just one word like that. Something so world-changing, something so faith-changing for us boiled down to one word. You blink and you'll miss it. And if I were the women there, I would want more information. I'd want to know exactly what had happened, how that had happened. He, he, he's alive? Where is he? He is not here. Okay, so where is he? What's going on? And I think it's tempting for us to go over to the other Gospels, books like Matthew and, and Luke and John, and try to figure out more of the details. What exactly was going on here? And that's a good thing to do. I encourage you to do it in your own time. But what I love about the book of Mark is almost how little we're told about what's going on here. Because here in this passage, with that one word, he is risen, we're told everything we need to know. We're told everything we need to know about this scene with that one word, he is risen, Egerthe. It doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't paint for us a vivid picture that we can, we can picture but we have all we need to know. The one word that changes everything. The one word that flips the story of Jesus on its head. He has risen. So I know for me, um, 
I mentioned this a moment ago. I always thought the cross was the main focus uh, of the Christian life. After all, it's the cross that we sing probably the most about, right? Oh, the wonderful cross. It's the cross that we put on necklaces. It's the, it's the cross that we substitute every T for in every Christian organization. The cross seems to be the center of everything we believe, and it is. I don't want to take that away. But here's what I do want to say. Why is the resurrection such a big deal then? If the cross is the center of everything, why am I making it sound like the resurrection is actually the thing that makes everything we believe true? Why did Ben make it so clear to us just a moment ago that if this didn't happen, all of this would be nothing? Well, it comes down to simple math. Let me do some simple math for you. The cross minus the resurrection equals defeat. The cross plus the resurrection equals victory. The cross minus the resurrection equals Jesus' defeat, his failure. He's a fraud. The cross plus the resurrection equals Jesus' victory. Now, I'm not going to explain that. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul explain that. Because the passage Ben read just a moment ago completely, perfectly unpacks why that's the case. Let me read it again slowly. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. In other words, your faith that Jesus' atoning death on the cross wiped away your sin is futile. It's meaningless. It does nothing. You can believe that all you want, but it doesn't matter because he's dead. Then those who have fallen asleep, that means those who have died in Christ, have, have just perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Because let me ask you this question. If, um, if we got definitive proof today that Jesus' resurrection was a hoax, if we found Jesus' body... Absolutely definitive proof. Or maybe we found a letter uh, that Paul wrote to Peter saying, hey, uh, let's make up a resurrection so that we don't look like idiots. If that's the case, if that happened, how would that change your faith? If the resurrection was nothing but the greatest hoax in history, well, how would that change the way you, you live? I would encourage you that if we find definitive proof that the Bible is not true, I would encourage you to throw your Bible away. I would encourage you to never say another prayer again the, the rest of your life. I would encourage you, encourage you to never go to a church again because, frankly, I'm quitting my job and you should get a couple more hours of sleep every weekend. If Jesus never rose from the dead, don't, don't do this religion thing because it's all a lie. Everything that Jesus said was pointless. Everything you believed was a lie. You have been deceived. You have been singing to a dead man. And Paul is absolutely right. We are most to be pitied if that's our story. If we're a group of deceived people who thought that Jesus was king but were wrong the whole time. Thought that Jesus had risen from the dead but he actually hadn't. But Paul continues in verse 20. He says this. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who had fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then 
at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The cross minus the resurrection is Jesus' defeat, but the cross plus the resurrection is Jesus' victory. Because Jesus has risen, we have a manifold, a manifold number of implications, things that are different because he rose again, but I'm going to focus just on three things. Because he lives, here are three things that are different for us. Number one, because he lives, we have proof that he is who he says he is. Because he is risen, because he lives, we have proof that he is who he says he is. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 4. I don't have it up here, but this is what it says. It says that he, has decl- he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection proves that everything he said about himself was actually true. His resurrection proves that he is actually the Son of God, that he's actually the one who was sent from God to save us. Because he lives, we have proof that he actually is who he says he is. So that's his identity. His resurrection proves his identity. But not just that. Because he lives, we know that he has power over sin and death. Because he lives, we know what his identity is, but also because he lives, we know what his power entails. He died, but the grave couldn't hold him. Three days later, he strode forth from the grave as the victor, the conqueror of death, of hell, and of all opposing might. He burst the bands of death. He trampled the powers of darkness, and now he lives forever. The grave was a one-way road until Jesus came along. He tore down the one-way sign and made it a two-directional road because Jesus went to the grave, won the victory, and returned to life again, never to die again. Because in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, we read that death no longer has dominion over him. He has beat the powers of death. He is stronger than the powers of death. He proved that with his resurrection. So because he lives, we know he is who he says he is. Because he lives, we know he's stronger than death. And finally, because he lives, we know that his victory is our victory. We know that his victory is our victory. Because he has power over the grave. And if we are in him, we will too. If we put our trust in him, we will too. His resurrection is our resurrection. His eternal life is shared with us. We just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in Christ shall all be made alive. That Christ is the firstfruits. He's the, he's the firstborn of the dead. And then at his coming, when he returns, those who belong to Christ will be risen with him. Because Jesus lives, we know he is who he says he is. Because Jesus lives, we know he has power over death and sin, the powers of darkness. Because Jesus lives, we know that his life is shared with us. The cross minus the resurrection is Jesus' defeat. The cross plus the resurrection is Jesus' victory. So I have some bad news, and then I have some good news, and then I have some bad news, and then I have more good news. First the bad news, the first bad news. The bad news is that the world is broken. It's not hard to see that. It's, it's almost a blessing that it's so obvious that the world is broken. I, I wish it wasn't. We all do. But this is bad news that it's broken. But I mean, 
Um, <laughs> but we can all agree on that. And that's nice. We can agree on something. The world is broken and needs to be fixed. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. God is going to fix it. He promised he was going to fix it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, ever since the moment it was broken. God is going to come and fix everything that is broken in this world. He's going to remove all evil. He's going to erase all sin. Death is going to be washed away. He's going to come and fully bring the kingdom that he inaugurated at his death and resurrection. And he's going to rule and reign over a perfect world, a restored world. That's good news. But now I have more bad news. The bad news is that if you're honest, you know that the sin and the brokenness that you see in the world is in us as well. The sin, the brokenness, the selfishness that causes so much of the evil in the world is, has lodged itself permanently in our hearts as well. We, in many ways, in every way, we are the issue here. And we might not be as bad as that guy over there or that woman over here, but that's not really the point. The point is that if God is going to come and remove all evil, if he's going to remove all sin, if he's going to remove all brokenness, he's going to have to remove us. That's the issue. We're on the list of broken things that need to be fixed. Everyone is, except Jesus. And that's the good news. The good news is that while I am broken, you are broken, I am sinful and evil at heart, we all are fallen by nature. Jesus wasn't. Jesus alone of all the humans in the history of the world lived the perfect life that we could never live. He lived free from all sin and all evil evil like we never could. Jesus alone is on the list of things that don't need to be fixed in this world. And he loved us. Not because we were cute, not because we earned that love, not because we did anything to receive it ourselves. He loved us purely by grace. He loved us so much that he was willing to do whatever it took to get off us off that list of broken things, to fix it, to fix us. And the way that he planned to do that was by substituting himself with us, making a substitute with us. He, the perfect one, received the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He took our sins, bore our sins, and then received the punishment for our sins. The perfect one received the full force of God's judgment in our place so that by faith we can be forgiven. We can receive his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, all accredited to us while he took our sins and paid for them on the cross. He, the perfect one, took our sins and left us perfect. And we can boil it down like this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it. He washed us white as snow. On Sunday morning of Easter, we celebrate the fact that Jesus' death was followed by his resurrection. That he didn't only die to pay for our sin, but he rose again to eternal, everlasting life so that the life he won, he could share with us. We are pure by faith, united with him, starting the moment you believe and lasting forever.
And so if that's what you believe this morning, we're going to celebrate that together. We're going to worship him for it together. We're going to take communion here in a minute. But I know that not everybody who's watching at home or here in person is 100% sure of who Jesus is. I mean, there's some people maybe who, who um, maybe this, this Jesus thing is new to them uh, or, or to you. Um, you're, you're hearing about Jesus and you're just not sure you fully buy it. Um, it seems very foreign. It seems very strange to you. But I know that on the other side of it, there's many Christians who doubt whether this is true. Or many people who've been in the church for years, maybe whose parents brought them to church for years, who just aren't quite sure whether or not that's something uh, that you fully grasp, that you fully buy. I'm foolish to think that's not where we're at, because frankly, in my own story, I was there many times when I was younger, and I'm, I still wrestle with this question. Is Jesus actually who he says he is? And I do just want to encourage you to, say, to ask yourself this question. Did he rise? Have you wrestled with that question? Have you really taken the time to seek an answer to that question? Because the thing is, this is the safest place in the world to wrestle with those questions, to wrestle with those doubts. Is Jesus actually who he says he is? I want to invite you, if you're wrestling with that, don't wrestle alone. Don't feel like you have to figure out who Jesus is on your own, quietly in your own mind, and then and then put all that to rest by yourself. I want to say, nothing would make me happier in the world than if you came to me and said, I don't know about all this. Because it's okay to question, it's okay to doubt, but it's not okay to let your doubt sit and fester. Seek. Wrestle. Seek an answer. Talk to people who know Christ. Talk to them about what they believe. Why do they believe it? Wrestle through it together. And I want to encourage you to do that wrestling because I have confidence, absolute certain confidence, because it's my own story here as well, that if you seek, you will find that in God is not only life, but joy. In Christ is not only salvation, but the happiness of having a relationship with one who loves you enough to die for you. The promise of the cross and of the resurrection can be yours purely by faith. So I want to encourage you, come talk to me. Talk to the person who brought you. Uh, it, my number is 603-832-3131. Give me a call. I would love to buy you coffee every day until we work through your questions. Maybe not every day, maybe every week. <laughs> but this is worth wrestling through. Who is Jesus? Is he actually who he says he is? Is he, his, is he who he says he is just because my mom and dad think so? Just because my husband or my wife thinks so, wrestle with that. Fight, fight, fight to come to a point where you can say with confidence that you know who Jesus is. Because I can say with confidence, he is the Lord. The God who bore our sins and died, rose again victorious, victorious over death, victorious over the power of sin, and is offering that to us purely by faith. We're going to celebrate that now. And we're going to celebrate that now by taking communion. And if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, if you've put your trust in him um, alone, uh, his, his substitution in your place, then you are welcome to join us for this, for this communion meal. If you're not a follower of Christ, or uh, if you're not sure that you have certainly received a new life by faith in him, I want to encourage you not to take communion with us this morning. Maybe this could be a time where you can, 
where you can wrestle with and meditate upon that question, is Jesus actually who he says he is? And am I willing to bet my eternity on my conclusion? Take this time to wrestle with that question and to, and to seek. And for those of us who do know, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, this is the way that Jesus Christ called us to celebrate that together. Because in communion, we're doing two things. The first thing is we're looking back. We're looking back and remembering what Jesus did. We're remembering the death he died on the cross in our place. We're also remembering the victory he won that we're celebrating this morning when he rose again from the dead. But we're also looking forward. We're looking forward to the day when this small meal uh, turns into a feast that we will be able to share with Jesus for eternity. Communion points us to the past and to the future to celebrate what is ours in, in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross when he died and on the empty grave when he rose again. So let's take a minute now to just quiet our hearts for a moment for communion. Remember what your forgiveness cost Jesus. Take a moment to remember the life, the, the eternal communion you'll share with him in the future by faith. What all this is pointing forward to. Take a moment to say, Lord, thank you to him. We're going to take communion now uh, with, these, with these cups. If you're here uh, in person, you can remove the top layer, just the clear layer. If you're at home, juice, bread is great. If you have something else, that's fine as well. Uh, these are substitutes, so that's totally fine. But we're going to start with the bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're here this morning to celebrate what your son Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross and rose again, to celebrate who he is and the victory that he won for us. 
Father, we're here to celebrate this and remember that the fact that because he lives, everything is different. Because Jesus lives, we know that he is exactly who he says he is. Because we, he lives, we know that he is the son of God. Because he lives, we know that he has not only risen, but he is currently reigning and he will one day return. Because he lives, Lord, we know that you have power over sin and over death, that you are able to overcome the death that is coming for all of us. Lord, that you have the power over sin that is still haunting our lives until the day we return to you. Because you live, Lord, we know that you will fulfill your promise to bring us with you where you are, as you promised. Father, we have so much hope, but that hope is ours only because you live. We praise you for that, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name.